0: Welcome to Tez Podagogy. Mental health in schools almost always gets discussed in relation to the secondary phase and teenagers. But how prevalent are challenges in primary and even EYFS? To explore this, I'm joined in this episode by Dr Wendy Sims-Skelton, Associate Professor in Childhood Studies at the University of Portsmouth and Head of the Mental Health in Childhood and Education Research Group. Hello Wendy. Hello. So, why do you think we always associate mental health challenges or issues with with teenagers, why does our mind automatically go to, uh, why do we picture a teenager when we think about mental health issues in schools?
1: When it comes to mental health issues and mental health problems, um, we know that when children or young people are diagnosed, it's more likely to happen when they're teenagers, especially at roughly age 14. That's not to say that there are no signs of mental health issues and problems earlier on in life. But the sort of roughly, generally, when you think about mental health issues, eating disorders, um, depression, are most likely to be diagnosed from age 14.
0: Is there a a biological reason for that? Is it because we are looking harder for those issues in the teenage years? I mean, you know, anecdotally, it seems that the pastoral attention at primary is, is more so than at secondary. So you'd expect to see them more. Primary, any 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 problems, but we have this shift where actually at secondary they're being picked up more, perhaps.
1: I think. Traditionally, we're trying to be very careful when it comes to diagnosing younger children. Also because, of course, there are the, develop- the different developmental pathways and milestones. So children are developing. That's not to say that the child from 14 onwards is not developing, but it's more likely to see specific signs of specific mental health issues at age 14 onwards. However, there will be early signs, children suffering from you know issues around mental health and well-being, there will be early signs at primary school and even uh, earlier on when children are in early years so it is important to be aware of this but it's also important to be aware of the fact that children are developing so we need to be very careful uh, how we take this forward and how we approach mental health and well-being in childhood
0: does that mean that sometimes we can see a problem at any age that that might be a mental health issue but actually is is part of a different is part of a developmental trajectory so that is it is it quite is there a sort of a tipping point where this quite a cloudy a grey area which, which, which section that would fall into.
1: Yes and, and, and to an extent that's tricky as well so for example there are the signs and symptoms of potential mental health issues and if we get involved early on through early intervention and prevention we can make sure that certain problems issues in childhood uh, don't turn into you know, diagnosable mental health issues. So from that perspective, of course, it's very o- important to get involved early on in life and to be aware of, of early signs and symptoms of, of children suffering and not doing very well, which are issues around uh, mood changes, uh, behavioral issues, uh, for example, certain kind of fears, uh, anxiety. All of those are the early symptoms of what could be a mental health issue but again, we need to acknowledge as well that children are developing and we need to look at the pattern. So in order to, be, to sort of make sense of mental health and wellbeing early on in life, uh, everybody has an off day occasionally. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to school, you just don't feel great. But it is that particular child who seems to have an off day for, for a long period of time, or whose behavior has changed, or who seems to all of a sudden have these certain kind of fears. And, and is not able to engage well with their peer group, or the child who's being bullied, because bullying, of course, is a big factor here as well.
0: Mm. Do, they, do, you, you know, do you get better at articulating these problems as an individual as you get older? Is a, is a 14-year-old better at articulating how they're feeling and perhaps uh, the problems that are, or, are occurring than a 7-year-old, or actually are a lot of the symptoms out of our control and our, and our behavioural? rather than having to articulate them?
1: I think it's, it's yes, an older child would be in, in a better position to articulate and explain, I'm not feeling great. Whereas when you're looking at a younger child uh, who might be talking about stomach ache, uh, not feeling very well, and that could in and of itself be a sign and symptom of, of a mental health issue or, or an underlying wellbeing issue. So there are issues around being able to verbalise it, but there are of course ways around this as well. There are now a lot of books that schools can use I think the uh, Royal uh, Society for Psychiatric, uh, the Royal College of uh, Psychiatry, have produced some really interesting books that are specifically geared towards primary school age children, so that teachers can use to open up discussions around um, emotions and well-being. And what is especially powerful with children is stories around metaphors. So rather than talking to a child about how are you feeling, what is going on, because that's too direct, you could present a child with a story of a snail who is not feeling great and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, that might be a story around self-esteem, well-being, or another story about a little train who's being bullied and doesn't know what to do, because a lot of the time it's it's sort of a sense of being powerless as well.
0: Mm. Are they... um, Is that essentially giving them the the tools to understand themselves? Are, Are they... Does a young person of that sort of age group understand that they are anxious or understand that the tummy ache might be down to anxiety, for example, or do, and then they don't, can't articulate it? Or do they not even know understand their own feelings at that age?
1: They obviously don't feel great within themselves if, if there are underlying mental health and well-being issues, but indeed they may not be able to articulate, which is why we sometimes see children who have behavioural issues. <laughs> and sometimes there is a tendency to punish the behaviour but really you need to look at what what causes the behaviour. So it's very important for adults around the child to step back step back, and look at the child and and sort of talk to the child. So there is this sort of notion of uh, social buffering. Social buffering is when you have chats and and conversations with the child to talk about what's going on, how are you today? And not too direct, not saying, do you feel good? Do you, how is your self-esteem? Of course, we have to be very careful what language we use. But it is about opening up discussions and and providing tools for children to to deal with things. Because when it comes to issues around mental health and well-being, we know, for example, that 15% of uh, children aged four who have um, a parent with a mental health issue develop a mental health issue themselves. In other words, there is a direct link between home situation, mental health issues of parents and development of issues, problems at age four, as young as age four.
0: That seems really, really young to be able to... like. I mean, what sort of behaviours might they be exhibiting at that age? I mean, how do they? How do you gauge between a, a normal four-year-old behaviour pattern of quite erratic emotionally? The four-year-old I've got a four-year-old of my own, and, uh, and <laughs> yep. I had one before. Uh, my older child went through that stage, and and they can be quite yeah, not scary, but sometimes you know a tantrum can be. Whoa, where, where did yeah. that come from? And and then saying, okay, that's that's n- that's typical, if you'd like to call that. You know, we could call it a typical four-year-old behaviour. And what might a atypical four-year-old be doing?
1: I think it's the extremes. So again, if, if a child is occasionally a bit off and and, and throws a temper and, and, and isn't happy, that's part of, of, of growing up. Mm. But if it's consistent, if day in, day out, the child comes in and it's the child is not functioning, there might be behavioral issues, uh, the child might be withdrawn or not able to play with uh, peers or not feel, feeling like they're in a position to, to to do their work. They can't concentrate, so their academic work might suffer. Mm. So it's also about a pattern that's quite abnormal for that particular child. So in that case, we also need to look at the individual child because of course there are differences between ch- children. Every child is unique, every child is an individual. Mm. So it's also important to get to know the child. How do, does the child behave normally and what is different? And mm. if nothing is different, you know, and maybe some children are more outgoing than others. But, and it's also action-reaction. So it's not just home situation, of course, that causes issues or can potentially cause issues. There are also issues around bullying. Mm-hmm. And I think we tend to forget, because when we look at mental health and wellbeing, we tend to look at home and what's going on there. But there is also quite a lot of evidence that bullying can cause quite a lot of problems for mental health and wellbeing. And long-lasting problems, so children who are bullied as young as age three or four and then go through primary school being bullied will have mental potentially have mental health issues by the time you know they're 11, 12 but you will also see signs and symptoms when they're at primary school.
0: Mm. And do they in terms of the home environment how much of a behaviour can be learnt behaviour because that's that's typical of what's for home and how much might be a, a a mental health issue in the sense of if a child is exhibiting sort of violent behaviour for example Yeah do we, is there a way of finding out whether that is linked to a, a deep anxiety or, or another mental health issue or it's just a learnt behaviour from older siblings or, or parents, violence, violence in the home essentially, I mean that distinction is quite, must be quite tough.
1: I think the the whole school approach is very important. You know, the whole school approach is what's being adopted in different schools, and mm. effectively, what it means is that head teachers, uh, teachers, governors, parents, anybody who is who is around the child, who's part of the child's life, work together to to create an environment that's supportive, mm. and this also involves communicating with parents observations and, and having, having an open approach. And, and I have an interesting example that um, I came across some years ago. So I was teaching on um, one of our courses in early childhood. Mm-hmm. And one of our students was a practitioner who worked in early years. And she told me a very interesting story. She had a five-year-old in, in her class who was quite aggressive. He used to hit kids, other kids. Okay. And, and it was getting out of control. And she was worried about it. So she organized to meet with the mother. So she had a chat with the mother and she said, um, your son is quite aggressive and is hitting other kids. And mum walked straight up to the child and smacked him. So that's sort of a sense that sometimes, yes, indeed it could be learned behavior. But it is about sort of getting to know the child, uh, their home situation, but also what is happening at school. Because sometimes you see children who are behaving very differently at school compared to at home. I used to know this girl who was apparently out of control in school. Teachers yeah. couldn't control her, they kept punishing her. But at home, there was nothing nothing going on. In other words, she was functioning very well at home, good relationship with the siblings, parents were fine. So then you could ask yourself, do we need to look at the school situation? And maybe there is a tendency to, to sanction or punish certain behaviors, and we need to look at what causes the behavior rather than saying, you're a bad person, we need to make sure that you behave properly. Mm so yeah.
0: When there is a learned behaviour like like the example you gave the mum hitting the child does that not negate the fact that there might be a, also a mental health problem because of that if you're in a violent home could you also could you not only be learning the violent behaviour but also develop a mental health issue because of that violent behaviour and there is potentially a mental health issue within the, within the parents or the family as well because of that?
1: Yeah and that's a really tricky one I mean if you look at uh, mental health issues or mental health problems that are most commonly diagnosed in younger children, Mm. it would either be conduct disorder or anxiety disorder. What's a conduct disorder? So conduct disorder is a a child who is showing quite extreme violent behaviour to the point that they're harming animals, uh, they're being destructive. And if you look at the evidence uh, of what could potentially cause conduct disorder, it seems to be a mix of nature and nurture okay and and that's always a tricky thing with mental health issues it we know of course that there is a big nurture or environmental element what's happening at home what's happening in your life what's happening at school but there is also a biological element so it is about when a child is showing that kind of behavior where things are getting out of control really what you need to do is 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 uh, obviously getting uh, cams child and adolescent adolescent mental health services involved uh, there will be a pastoral worker in school or, or somebody who could sort of you know refer the child or at least uh, you know work the child with the child in the initial stages mm. but uh, educational psychologists need to be involved as well so again that's also part of the whole school approach is knowing when you need to refer a child for for extra support and help
0: is so the two main ones you mentioned there, a conduct disorder and an anxiety disorder, are they the ones we most commonly see in the sort of two to two to ten years old bracket?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, and again, it is really tricky to put a label on mm. a child because a child is always developing. So mm. the fact that a child may have conduct disorder or whatever, you know, behavioural issues early on doesn't mean they can't grow out of it. So we have to be very careful we don't label the child. But uh, those seem to be the disorders that are most commonly diagnosed. Anxiety disorder could be a sign of underlying attachment issues Mm -hmm. or attachment disorder, which could be associated with mental health problems in parents, uh, disorganised attachment at home, but it could also be linked to to issues and problems at at school where the child is just simply worried to go to school because they're just not coping.
0: Mm. The anxiety one's tricky, isn't it, I guess, because... At what point does a natural stress, if you like, if you want to call it that, or a natural nervousness become an anxiety disorder? Like, if if I'm worried because I said something that a little bit wrong to a friend and I'm worried about the repercussions, I guess you'd say it was persistent? Yes, that uh, it? yeah.
1: and it's also, again, being aware of the early signs and symptoms and, and making sure that you support the child so it doesn't escalate. Mm. But it is those children who, who are... Not coping. They're crying and they have panic attacks, and they simply can't be in the school environment because it's just too hard for them emotionally. Mm. And there might be physical symptoms as well, throwing up, all of that.
0: So when we're when we're ta- dealing with children in the two to ten age group, and we've discussed that they might not know what's going on themselves, and, and they might not understand what's going on themselves, and it's quite tricky to to uh, navigate these different different sort of causes if you like, if you want to call them causes. As a teacher, how much, how much sort of chance do you have to, to spot these things? I mean, how much training do teachers have and, you know, how skilled do you have to be to spot these sort of early signs of, of, of an issue?
1: But I think there sort of are a number of changes which are mostly happening at the moment in secondary school, which is the mental health first aid approach, mm-hmm. where one teacher is, is or two in, in every big secondary school is being trained. And those things, of course, are needed in primary schools as well, so specific training when it comes to recognising early signs of uh, mental health problems or wellbeing issues or emotionally, emotional issues as well. So. Teachers, of course, especially at primary school, are in a good place to, to to get to know the child, because they tend to deal with the same children for a whole year, mm-hmm. which is different to secondary school, where you teach subjects. so you, yeah, It's quite fragmented. Yes. Yeah. So in primary school, of course, the teacher will get to know the child. And, and as such, it's important for them, number one, to step back when they see the child's behavior and ask themselves, what could be the symptoms, What could be the causes? What is going on with this child? Mm. Talk to the parents, but also, um, talk to other teachers and be supportive. I mean, the, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Good Childhood Report, which is produced by the Chil- uh, Children's Society every year. And the Good Childhood Report looks at subjective well-being. And subjective well-being is very much linked to, to what the child is feeling and how the child sees the world. And there is, again, a lot of evidence that subjective well-being, issues around bullying, uh, peer relationships, friendships, are all linked to it. Okay. And I know schools have a lot of things in place already. So for children who are on their own in the playground. There are sometimes little areas where they can go so that people can see or other kids can see that they're on their own and they want to make a friend. You know, those sort of peer or buddy um, areas. Yeah. So those are really helpful. But, but it's also what I think is very important when, when you work with children as a teacher. To step back but also reflect on on your own emotions and feelings because sometimes when the child is consistently showing extreme behavior and and is is, is, be, is challenging to other kids it, it is almost tempting to to punish the child you know time out uh, or shout at the child and it's important to step back and and think about what causes this behavior rather than punishing the behaviour, looking at the child. So talking to the child, this social buffering, as I was talking about earlier, Mm. is about showing empathy, talking to the child, doing group work, you know, with support from books, you know, about the little snail or the train who was being bullied. But it's also about teacher wellbeing because we tend to ignore that one as well. I mean, teachers suffer from mental health and wellbeing issues as well. There's a lot of stress on them. So it's important for them to be aware of their own wellbeing when they're working with children.
0: And their reactions to behaviour because of their own mental wellbeing.
1: The other thing we need to be aware of is uh, the fact, of course, as I said, children are unique, but children also come from un- their own unique environments. So we have children, uh, different you know, parental situations, uh, children from different ethnic minority backgrounds. And again, we need to make sure that we cater for the different needs of different children. There is, for example, evidence that children from BAME communities, so black and Asian minority ethnic communities, mm-hmm. are less likely to be diagnosed I mean, the official data suggests that they're less likely to have mental health issues compared to, to white uh, British children, for example. But you could also argue that this is because some of the signs and symptoms are simply not recognised mm. and not dealt with or not engaged with. So There's need- no
0: reason, is there, for that to be lower other than a lack of diagnosis there. Exactly.
1: So we need to do far more to engage with ethnic minority communities, give them a voice. It's it's something that I'm passionate about and I think it's incredibly important that we do, and do you, that.
0: I mean... On that theme, I guess, I mean, are teachers looking at most vulnerable groups here? I mean, is, does it make any difference of your socioeconomic background? We, we, we've noted just then that the ethnicity may be an issue in, in diagnosis. But in terms of occurrence, are, are there higher risk factors in terms of or socioeconomic background, background? But I guess you talked about bullying and you talked about some other factors that are, are presumably... Neutral in terms of
1: obviously. yeah yeah I mean there are the neutral factors now the World Health Organization refers to certain groups as vulnerable groups mm-hmm. now vulnerable groups are not groups that are vulnerable because they are weaker than other groups but it's groups who are more vulnerable because of the situation or the environment that they find themselves in mm. and from that perspective of course there are children who grow up in the care system who are more likely to be you know vulnerable to, for suffering from mental health issues you've got the so-called ACE you know. Um, yeah. Uh, adverse childhood experiences. And I think it's three or more of those, of course, is quite sort of a significant factor in potential mental health issues. And it's also uh, children from ethnic minority backgrounds, simply because of potential racism, discrimination, that's not um, recognized as such. And that can have an enormous impact on children. If you're going to school and you are on the receiving end of racism, uh, racist bullying, that's incredibly strong and it's and, and at the moment I think we need to do far more to to deal with those issues and support children
0: and today um, so, so if you had a child who was from a very comfortable middle-class background and you know as a teacher you might think oh, I don't have to worry much about that child actually that child's just as just as likely to have a mental health, a health issue
1: Indeed, yeah. And and I think, again, because of, of, of what we know and what we learn about children, when children start school, of course, there's all the background information. It is more tempting to think, oh, that child comes from a, a, a poorer background or is a child in care, so we have to be careful. But we also have to be careful with our own stigmas, mm-hmm. because there are children who are perfectly fine and they might grow up in poverty, but they have got the most amazing and lovely parents. And then you've got children who come from more wealthy families and they've got parents who don't really care about the child so you've got the child who, who, who might have low self-esteem or or has or has parents who are too permissive and just don't really care either way so again it is a, about the individual child and acknowledging the fact that you know children grow up in, in their own way in, obviously environmental influences play a big role but we need to sort of make sure that every child uh, that we're aware of the needs of every single child. Do we
0: need to get away from the idea of mental health being caused by trauma then, is, or just you know the, the the association in a lot of a lot of people's perception is that our oh, mental health issue comes out of trauma. Therefore, there are the high risk factors where trauma might occur, and you know you, there's there, there's this seemingly logical progression. But I think you mentioned before that I think only fifteen percent was it that. Uh, 15% sorry, are genetic factors. Well
1: 15% of children who have got mental health issues uh, parents with mental health issues will develop mental mm. health issues themselves that may not be a genetic factor though because it could be environmental okay. as well because if, if you have a parent who's depressed that could also be this again the learning element where you you basically have this example in front of you and and you basically it's it's sort of the the environmental factor and the, the nature so it's not just nature that of course, that you know means that those children are more likely to have mental health issues i think we do need to be aware of issues around trauma also in relation to what happens next for example children who are taken into care they um go through trauma, bereavement, because you're taken away from your parents. Whether or not those parents are good or bad parents, they will go through trauma when they end up in foster care or whatever. That sort of trauma can result in behavioural issues. Then if you sort of separate the two and you look at the behaviour of the child and you're like that's a badly behaved child, you need to punish them, then you're not doing that child justice at all, in fact that child will need support with their bereavement and their trauma, so we do need to acknowledge that trauma has quite an impact on children, definitely, yeah
0: And then the other factor, I mean is, is the bullying example you gave, is that a, is that a form of trauma uh, experiencing bullying, I mean is that where the mental health issue from bullying occurs because it is a trauma-like occurrence
1: definitely yeah bullying i would definitely argue that bullying is is, is a form of trauma mm. and i think because we do the bullying talk all the time and there's lots of interventions the people tend to think well we've it's done it's done we've got all these interventions in place so we know how to deal with bullying and i've even heard teachers say there's no bullying at our school and it's simply not true mm. we know there is bullying we know there is racist bullying sexist bullying which is more sort of something you will see in older children but um, it, it is important to be aware of it because it has enormous impact on children that can last a lifetime. Yeah.
0: Do you think the, the, the less prevalent diagnosis at an earlier age is not just down to perhaps uh, on the clinical side and people like yourself knowing that this is developmental trajectory and sort of a, not just a wait and see in terms of do nothing, but also just a, let's wait, let's try something, early interventions and see what happens. But do you think there's also a case that in our minds there's a teenager and it's this, you know, this surly teenager and you know, they're likely to get it and, and when you're under 10 these are innocent children, and, you know, they're untouched, you know, mm. untouched by the world if you like, there's this, there's this lack of, it's not acceptance I guess acceptance is the wrong word, but a, and perhaps a slightly less willing to believe that a child could, could experience these quite extreme feelings at an early, early age, that the world could almost do that to a child
1: Yeah, to an extent, definitely. I would also argue that, of course, when it comes to a diagnosable mental health issue, we're talking about something quite extreme. Mm. So when it comes to teenagers, you're talking about, for example, somebody who has anorexia, uh, somebody who's self-harming. And in younger children, you're less likely to see that sort of extreme behavior doesn't mean it's not there you will see early signs and of course there are children who are diagnosed and are as we speak in institutions for children with mental health issues and those kids could be primary school aged as well but we're talking about quite extreme behaviors where um there's you know extreme anxiety um, it's erratic behavior is where a child is simply not able to function anymore at school or at home and they're actually taking into residential care not as in a child in care but a child who's in psychiatric care so it does happen so I would argue that when it comes to mental health issues in teenagers it's, it's more extreme mm. and and Whereas in younger children, you see the early signs, and as soon as we, you know, we need to acknowledge those as well. So we need to be aware of this, because of course, early intervention prevention is absolutely key. If we can do something to support children during their primary school years, then we could possibly prevent stuff from escalating when they're a bit older.
0: What would you say in in a teacher's mind, so they they, they start to notice a pattern of of a change in behavior, which is, is, is what you sort of stipulated was a sort of early sign of something going slightly wrong, Where's the balance in their mind between labelling a child as as potentially having a mental health issue and getting the help they need in terms of, there's lots of teachers who will be reluctant to label a child through fear of uh, repercussions down the line, upsetting parents, for example, um, you know, creating lower expectations for that child when it might not actually be a mental health issue. In your sort of experience, should a teacher always err on the side of, Let's just let's just let the professionals have a look.
1: Absolutely. I don't think a teacher should ever label a child or use any mental health language because it, it's not anything they're qu- qualified to do. Mm-hmm. So all they can do is, is notice what the early signs are. And, and it might be better to refer to it as issues around well-being rather than mental health. Yeah. Because as soon as you say a child has a mental health issue, you're almost assuming that there is a proper d- diagnosable disorder. And, and the teachers shouldn't really be in a position to do that. Mm. So once things escalate, the child needs to be referred to be diagnosed if that is needed. It. but for in most cases or in a lot of the cases we're talking about early signs and symptoms and the child may need somebody to talk to they may need uh, as i said social buffering where they've got somebody who listens to their story um, they may need may need some individual support or whatever the school is able to provide so it is about those early signs when you're thinking about well-being and making sure the child feels well within themselves and their self-esteem is good they're able to function they, they can make friends um, and and they are you know doing all right in school, so that's I think the jo- the role of a teacher to make sure that those general things are okay. But once it's more serious, they need to to get some support for the child. Yeah.
0: Um when 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 it does become more serious, and and then CAMS turn around and say we've got a six month waiting list for that child, is there anything really a, a teacher can do in that six month period to 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 manage that child? I mean, is there a danger that in trying to manage it you make it worse because you don't fully know what, what you're doing in, in that sense. I mean is there just no other choice but to wait for the for the professional intervention?
1: It's a really tricky one because it's it's actually quite awful when you think about the fact that there is a waiting list and that the child who needs help is gonna to have to wait and the parents will have to wait. And really, I mean, if if a teacher is somebody around the child feels and it most likely is is a GP, so if things escalate, parents might take the child to the doctor and, and the child might be referred. So again, I mean, teachers can, I mean, ideally, you would have somebody who's trained in mental health first aid. But again, it's not a mental health work. It wouldn't be a psychiatric nurse or a um, psychologist psychiatrist. So that would never be the role of a teacher. All teachers can do is support children, uh, look at the child as an individual and don't sanction or punish bad behaviour, but again, allows the child to talk and say things like, how are you and and, and how was your day yesterday and try to be as supportive as possible.
0: Mm. So would you, uh, in terms of if you're a teacher managing a class of 30, and and I I can't think of a school probably where sanctions aren't part of a behaviour policy, how do you acknowledge that child is behaving in a way that's possibly out of their control while maintaining the, the sanctions base for the other 29 children who may need that boundary, if, if that makes sense?
1: I think it's it's about the balance of things so of course it's about um again whole school approach means that different parties are involved and are aware of what's going on with children and there are different policies in place and you work closely with parents but it is also about how you use sanctions and how you use discipline so you you know using time out or or whatever is what schools can do or or you know certain things that are being used to to you know support children or help them with their behavior but sometimes there is a tendency for a child who has quite extreme behavior who's running off who's hitting other children to to shout and say no don't do that and those are things that should never happen and of course as you're saying if you are if you're in a classroom and there's 30 kids and i hope there are classrooms that are a bit smaller than that at <laughs> primary school but yeah. then of course it's tempting to, to to be like stop it don't run away and, and yet, it, it is about, again, stepping back and thinking, OK, this may not be the best way to deal with the, with that particular child. You may actually get more of a result if you talk to the child individually and make sure you, you, know, you check what's going on. And again, I appreciate if there's 30 kids, then that's going to be quite tricky. So one would hope that there is other support. As I said, the whole school approach, I, I would hope there is a um, teaching assistant, pastoral care, yeah. and other people who can support the child here as well.
0: And can some of those sanctions be triggers? I don't know if that's the word you would use in in your line of work, but in terms of if a child is used to being isolated at home in a quite an aggressive way, if you then decide to use isolation in a in a primary school, and by that I mean it, it could mean a desk outside the head's office on your own or a specific area they have in schools now where you just have partitioned desks and, and someone in that room to oversee that, is 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 that in any, in any situation a good thing to do or is it, in certain situations, can be a triggering thing to do?
1: Yeah, again, I think it's it's important to look at the child's reaction. If it causes an extreme reaction in the child, it, it's important to step back and think, OK, so this may not work for this particular child. So it's important also to communicate with parents and, and invite parents in and, and talk to them and ask them, well, how it, how, what's happening at home? Uh, talk to other teachers talk to other people who who have experience of working with the child
0: you have you had quite a lot of experience in terms of those parental conversations i mean in my mind even the thought of broaching the subject with a parent about a child's behavior is 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 nerve-wracking but then then bringing in this element what you did say not to bring in the element of mental health but also to say, okay there's there's a well-being problem but the the conversation where you begin okay what's going on at home how do you angle that so it doesn't become this is your fault
1: I think that's a really tricky one because um, I have quite a lot of experience of, of interviewing parents about their experiences. So either parents who, who come from uh, you know, primary school, uh, kids at primary school, uh, age group, uh, secondary school. Um, I have talked to mothers who have mental health issues themselves and who have younger children. I'm also currently involved in a study on, on members from ethnic minority communities. And what I consistently get from parents is that they appreciate it when somebody talks to them, but also when somebody listens. Okay. Because the problem, of course, in, in schools is that teachers are very busy, and you have a lot of kids to look after, and, and you have a full timetable, and sometimes it, it, it is hard to, to make time for parents to talk. So mm. parents generally appreciate, and of course parents generally want the best for their child, and so do teachers. Mm. So generally, you would hope it's a meeting of the mind. It's never a good thing to say to a parent, what have you done? You're doing something wrong. <laughs> yeah. So it is more the sort of positive approach, like it's, you know, it's lovely working with your child, but so-and-so is doing really well here, and maybe struggling a bit here. Can we talk about blah blah blah? So it's about a positive approach, mm. So the can-do approach.
0: This is the behaviour we're getting at school. I was interested to whether you're getting this behaviour at home, and I guess that might be a way in to see, you know, if there's a consistent behaviour. Because, I mean, I know from talking to some parents as well from in the course of my work that sometimes they're so relieved to find out the problem's not just not just at home. Yeah. There's this vision that at school the child's perfect, and I'm failing as a parent because at home the child is. It is it, it, very disruptive, and then they find out the child's disruptive at school, and it's almost a relief for them. That's what yeah. some of the parents have told me.
1: Absolutely, some parents really it means a lot to them to to realise that they are not bad parents, mm. but there is something else going on, and the child's you know needs help. Then there is also the issue of, again, and looking at the whole package. I knew this family who uh, had a five-year-old. Mm. And because of behavioral issues, he um, basically was expe- excluded from various schools at age five. Mm. So he'd been going through di- two different schools. And every time he was expelled, and he was no longer allowed back. So mom, went, uh, mom was suffering from mental health issues herself. Mm and her her parents died she had trauma and depression so they went through family counseling and family therapy and it turned out that her trauma and her her behavior towards the child meant that he didn't quite know where he stood what his role was what to do with himself and that came out in in behavioral issues so the parent was literally taught how to play with the child so whenever she played with the child, she would tell him what to do or she would tell him off or she would say, no, that's not how you put a Lego figure together and that's not how you do it. And the psychologist actually basically gave her an ear thing so they observed her playing with the child and they said, OK, can you praise him now? Can you stroke his back? Can you say he did a good job? And it made all the difference. So it's sometime- like There's a
0: lack of modelling because her parents weren't around.
1: Yeah, and, and because of her own trauma, she felt, OK, when I play with my child, I, I do it like this. I'll tell him what to do and I tell him off when he is, is doing something wrong but what this little child needed was somebody to say good job you've done wow you've actually put together a lego thingy and it looks wonderful ah, sad, yeah. so it and his behavior changed and yeah. and so the whole family received family therapy and support and then it changed the family so that was good
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, a, it's a good result um, yeah and where do you see uh testing coming in to this mental health uh, debate in primary, because in secondary, it's you know there's a huge amount of debate about the stress put on teenagers at GCSE, and now we're seeing Sats as attracting you know similar attention. And the reason quite a lot of people are, are turning away from the baseline, where well, the proposed baseline at EYFS is, is not just because they think it's an invalid test, but, but also because they believe that you are creating anxiety for for a four to five year old in, in that test.
1: Yeah, I mean, ongoing testing and especially if if children are very aware of being in a test scenario can cause quite a lot of stress. I was um, in a school once and I asked children, I gave them a circle and I asked them to use that circle to draw, uh, you know, talk about what they were doing in the day. It's just a circle and they were seated and it was just a fun activity and the first thing they asked is, um, are we going to get a mark? Are we going to be assessed? And I was like, no, 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 it's a fun activity. This is not an assessment. And those were, I think they were seven, eight year olds. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting to see how they were in their mind already thinking about, I need to do a good job because this may be an assessment. So I think it also depends on how you put assessments across. I know some schools are very good at turning it into a game. Mm-hmm. And and of course, the most important thing is for a child to know that the work they put into it is amazing and it's not the, the end product. So it's never good to say to a child, um, you're know, you not very good because you didn't get 10 out of 10. I once talked to a teacher who had an approach where she asked children to study or learn spellings, 10 words every week. And each child who got 10 out of 10, she put their names on the door. So when parents picked up the children, there was a list on the door of all the children who got 10 out of 10. So I had a chat with her and I said, well, what about the child who got nine out of 10 or the child who got eight out of 10 or five out of 10, but who actually worked really hard. And she hadn't thought of that. Mm. And actually she changed it after. So I think that's the thing we need to be aware of i think we're doing too much testing and i think it is causing stress but it's also about how we approach it
0: so testing itself as a as a as a a practice isn't necessarily bad but how we frame that test and how perhaps regularly we test might cause issues
1: yeah and especially if you are put in those different sets where certain sets are better than others and kids always know you know you've got the giraffes or the elephants and the elephants you know and and sometimes that's hard too for children so I think you have to be very mindful of 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 how you deal with those issues because it could have huge impact on self-esteem and again it could impact on the child's performance later on in life as well
0: Mm. I guess that's my final question in the sense that if uh, if if there has been suspicion or, or early signs in year five and six should those should that be part of the transition to year seven should 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 there be a document that goes up and says, by the way, we've noticed this, can you keep an eye on it? And I think some informal practice of that goes on in schools that are quite well connected, but there's certainly no official yeah. journey. And likewise, there's no official administrative journey from a primary to a special school, a primary to approve, a secondary to a approve, a secondary to a special school. Even when there's an ECHP, it yeah. seems that there's a real disconnect there.
1: I think this needs to be done in in discussion and collaboration with parents and maybe even the child because, Mm. of course, in some situations it may not be a good idea to, to sort of pass on issues that might have happened at primary school because the child may need a clean start yeah. in other situations it may be incredibly good for a child to get the extra support or for people at least to be aware of the fact that there may have been some issues around well-being uh, or whatever is going on at home and this may have implications for how the child will do at secondary school so I think it is very important also to include the parents here and and uh, yeah take it from there
0: yeah. and an extra final question actually just while it's on it, it just came to me is that the act of exclusion from a primary school, and I had a colleague of yours, Simon Edwards, on the podcast a few weeks ago who, who, who said that actually some children just don't fit a mainstream, mm. a mainstream school and they do need something else, and we discussed whether a, there's a different methodology there than exclusion as a label. Can exclusion, especially at a young age, be a traumatic event?
1: can be very traumatic. Um, I'm working with a family at the moment where there is a suggestion that the child is going to be excluded, uh, and it's really sad because that child is being put in a position where they're made to feel bad. Now, of course, there are issues around behaviour that have you know have resulted in the child potentially being excluded, but sometimes you have to, again, as I said, step back and look at what is uh, what is causing this behaviour, and 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 not by default sort of punishing the child and threatening exclusion and, and actually have trying to have a chat and I know teachers will say well we've done this we've gone this route we've talked to the child and the parents they're not listening and every time behavior is out of control and we just simply can't cope with it. I still think indeed exclusion can has a huge impact and and you know to the point that if you're excluded you're labeled you can end up in the criminal justice system and it's unfair and that's something we want to prevent so we need to make sure that we do all we can to support children in, in those early stages even if it means uh, trying to keep a child on board who is potentially going to be excluded but looking at what is causing this and in this case I must admit I think there is an element of racism as well where where the child is treated a certain way maybe because of her ethnicity uh, uh, because of, of her background and as such again it's also important to step back and look at your own norms and values and and perhaps do diversity and inclusion training school I think some schools are very good at this whereas other schools could do more to to get the broader picture of of what do families from different communities need and how can we support every family in the same way
0: Wendy thank you very much thank you